0: Hi, and welcome back to the Utojua Hujui podcast. Now, a quick word before we get in. Your girl, Aileen, has a little bit of a potty mouth, which means she does not mind her language and she speaks the fluent French, (laughs) Um, Which is all to say that I understand that some people are a little bit uncomfortable with this language, so here's just a warning for you. If, however, you are not uncomfortable and you would like to learn about the world around you and capitalism and colonialism and just like, all this fun shit with a dazzling, brilliant, and funny host, if I do say so myself, um, keep listening. Hi, ho, oh, hello, and welcome back to the Uta Juhu podcast. How have y'all been? As for me in my house, we've been good. In fact, I am back to my Podcasting closet. Yes. We are back for no for no other reason than vibes. And let me tell you, clearing out this closet was work. Like I have a lot of clothes and like a lot of them just aren't working for the season of weather that we're in. And it's just, to be honest, it's it's a champagne problem. (laughs) So moving on, moving on. Um I wanna begin this podcast with like a story completely unrelated to the topic of this episode, but it is the story of how we got to that topic, and I think it's pretty funny for me anyway. Um so this episode began when I was like scrambling my mind trying to figure out what the fuck I'm going to talk about and then I overcorrected because you know how last episode I really wasn't feeling the topic so I thought you know what, let me investigate a question that I've really always wondered about for this episode and then I started asking myself okay what question could that be and I said Okay, why not ask myself, why aren't there more serial killers in in Kenya? Um, now, first and foremost, this is a horrible question. Not just because it makes no sense why would, I would be considering this. Like, do I want there to be more serial kill- killers? Kwani, is my life so boring that I yearn to be hunted by a serial killer? No, thank you, ma'am. But that's not the point. I think the point is maybe I got a little too much into true crime for a bit. Um, but it's a bad question because... It doesn't get at the point that I'm trying to make which is that it's weird that I can name several English and American and even like a German serial killer but I can I can only think of one Kenyan serial killer and um, the guy Philip Ony- Onyancha. Onyancha Onyancha Um who by the way PSA was just acquitted for one out of his 18 murders due to a lack of evidence um, he's still in jail don't worry but the thing keeping him in jail Uh, is the competency of DCI and their ability to collect good evidence and I don't know about (laughs) y'all but I'm not about to trust DCI like that so I'm just doing my public service from one person to another Um, being acquitted to a lack of evidence is not the same thing as being found innocent (laughs) just like from a legal perspective like the impact is the same but it's not the same so yeah beware TLDR, some might say that, like, even my ability to name that one Kenyan serial killer, Mr. Onyancha, is one too many. But it's still weird that he's the only one. Because, first and foremost, there are too many places to hide dead bodies in this country. And I cannot be the only one that has noticed this, right? Like, literally, there are so many empty hallways, so much rural land. Like, it's just... There's just so many holes that it... Like, be, being a serial killer... would just be very you would thrive it's a very enabling environment is what I'm trying to say um and every single time I point this out to my boyfriend in particular he always asks me if I'm if I'm a serial killer and then he just says like look if you are going to kill me please do it nice and nice and fast I'm like I'm not a serial killer but it is weird that there are so many places to dump dead bodies and dead bodies are being dumped I'm not sure if I'm sensing an opportunity that does not need to be sensed and I'm not sure if that says something about my mind we're just going to move past that and again the second reason like why I also find it weird that you know the disparity of serial killers for want of a better term is um and this is the real reason right here is that like I'm working from like a western understanding of his Western understanding and history of true crime and serial killer history and tendencies. Because it seems that if you have a long enough history of recording shit down, you will run into serial killers. Like South Africa's first serial killer it was a guy called Pierre Basson who murdered nine people in the early 20th century. Um, for, So maybe it's just that Kenya like hasn't developed that history because perhaps you don't have as many psychopathic, sociopathic tendencies in this country. And if that's the case why right like is it the fact that we lack the record keeping is it the fact that we don't have the necessary mental health resources and and structures and systems in place to be able to not only identify cases of sociopathy and and psychopathy but also be able to sufficiently respond to them or is it something about our culture and the way in which we're living life here um i don't know I, I would be fascinated to read something if somebody could send me something. Um, but as I started to research this question of why aren't there more serial killers in Kenya, um, I started, you know, from researching the like murders in pre-colonial Africa to basically understand how we would understand... Uh, or other pre-colonial African societies understa- understood, interacted, and attempted to mitigate instances of murder, homicide, etc. Um, and, and as I was, like, looking at various murder cases, I came across Chief warohu you know, the, the guy who was murdered in 1952 um, and his murder kicked off the period of emergency. Chief warohu and I kind of just stopped looking at serial killers and I started looking at him because I've always been fascinated by colonial history and politics because the the colonial period is a very interesting point in time where for the people living inside of it it feels like a lot of inconsequential choices are being made because you're making them every day and the kind of choices that I am referring to or about are choices specifically about how to engage with the colonial system and colonizers themselves, um, and it's things like: Do I send my kids to school? Do I accept Western medicine? Um, do I, you know, choose to stay with my ancestral home, and do I try to make something of myself? In the city which is essentially a a colonized space um how do i respond to people whose views and actions i disagree with all knowing that these choices have consequences um but you're not thinking about it that way you're just thinking about it as life and chief wari represents a very interesting man as uh, because he was murdered ultimately because of his choice to collaborate with the colonizers or rather what people saw as his choice to collaborate with the colonizers. Um, And it got me thinking about this question, which is, is murder appropriate when someone has sold you out, when one of your own has sold you to the dogs, Um, when their actions are directly contributing to your oppression and treatment, is murdering them the right thing to do? If it's not appropriate, maybe that's the wrong word, is, is that reflex, that that desire to just rid yourself of that person's presence, is that reflex understandable. And ultimately that is what the story is about. It's about choices, Chief Warihyu, and kind of, I guess, trying to understand political murder and assassination. We all know the story of Chief Warihu, or we think we know it. It is a story of a man who chose to collaborate with the colonizers in the oppression of his people and was so keen in his endeavors that he died for it. But history resists simplicity, and things are so much more complicated than this. To begin with, though, we're not going to start with Chief Waruhio himself. Um, We need to talk about the ocean in which he swam, um, specifically the colonial governance system and the imposition of chiefs oh yeah chiefs as you think of them were not universal in african culture generally and amongst the agekoyo specifically they are an imposition of the british colonizers who landed in africa took one look at whatever the fuck it was that we were doing and were like nah nah it's not gonna work for me and africans were like but but it works for us but it's like nah it's not gonna work for me though but it's like oh i'm so mad anyway so peak colonizer energy right there so the traditional agekoyo society was governed by a council of elders who governed by consensus the members of this council were called mudamaki and they were not appointed nor were they born into positions members of this council were chosen by their peers and they emerged after a long process that began in childhood g Moriyoki summarizes this process as follows and i quote The emergence and recognition as a mudamaki was hence a slow process, and no single qualification was decisive. It was the general consensus of opinion that mattered. Self-assertion, courage, self-confidence, and diligence were important assets for a warrior, while wisdom, tact, self-control, and wide experience were some of the qualities looked for in an elder who aspired to be a mudamaki." End quote. When the Adamaki, which is the plural of Mudamaki, were selected, they did not wield power in the way that we think. Um, They did not have any executive, judicial, coercive or religious power, which means that they could not make laws. They could not force you to obey them. They could not decide who broke the law or, or even decide what punishment was appropriate or even tell you that they were the only ones who could connect you to God. Instead, Mudamaki were peacekeepers and arbiters arbitrators. They reinforced the bonds between different clans and as a result derived their power and status from the community. It's pretty cool, huh? It's like super democratic. Like I like I'm not sure how this would work in real life or what that looked like in the past cuz I'm pretty sure it had its issues, but just reading about it sounds super idyllic, which is a problem about African history in general that whenever we talk about the past we tend to idealize and romanticize it. Um yeah. Uh. Anyway, the British took one look at this Mudamaki system, this governance through consensus in which leaders emerge out of the community who are chosen by the community, who derive their power by the community. And the British took one look at this democratic system of governance and they were like, oh, no, 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 no. You uncivilized brutes, this is not going to work. Um, and, and it's not going to work because the Maki system did not allow the British to actually extract and suck years wealth because it was so decentralized and spread out which meant that the colonizers which meant that the colonizers would have had to deal with far too many people to extract resources and labor which meant more boots on the ground which is more expensive so to save on money and also just effort they imposed the chiefdom system and they changed the way leaders were chosen among the Agekuyo fundamentally. Instead of choosing our own chiefs, the British chose them for us. And the men they appointed sucked ass. Most of them were mercenaries, people who had helped the colonizers reach Kenya's interior. So you're looking at men like porters, askaris, or guards, and guides. Um, one of these men was a man called Kinyanjui Wa Virimu. He was run out of Muranga by his own family for his rebelliousness, and he must have been pretty fucking rebellious for him to be been run out like that. Um, Wagirimo served the British on their punitive expeditions into the interior where they burned and killed their way through Agikoyo land. And for his assistance, he was rewarded with a chiefdom. Now, uh, sometimes the British also just like did not give a flying fuck. Like with the appointment of Kamiri Wa Itherero, yeah, Itherero, he was a social misfit and a renowned witch doctor. He was the chief of of Roeke location in Kiambu County, and people literally refused to do what he said, yet he was still appointed as chief. These are the kind of men that the colonizers would appoint to be chiefs, a far cry from the traditional Mudamaki and the leader among men model. Of the first generation of chiefs appointed by the colonizers, only one one out of maybe like 20, maybe 50, was elected by his peers, one. Chiefs were expected to provide labor for white farms, keep the peace, and enforce colonial laws. They were also expected to extract and collect taxes, build public infrastructure, and control the warriors and police force. Basically, they were like little governors of that little territory, and then they reported to the Assistant District Commissioner, or ADC, who would then report to the District Commissioner, or DC but many of these chiefs did not know how to read or write which made administration and record keeping virtually impossible the distance chiefs enjoyed from adcs and dcs because remember they were installed to because the british had this thing of like indirect rule um which means like they really tried to avoid having boots on the actual ground as much as possible and had like a really preferred to have a bird's eye colonizer energy type thing going on um so these chiefs, once you were appointed, you were basically like a king. It would take it would take a lot for somebody to come in and stop you from, I don't know, stealing and pillaging and doing whatever you wanted. Um, and as a result, these chiefs be- basically became a law unto themselves. And because the chiefs also had to impose laws that were not popular among the people, they sometimes resorted to brutal force to get shit done. As a result, and as you can imagine, chiefs were not liked. And that's putting it very very nicely. I imagine if a chief was asking for help, some might feel inclined to enjoy their suffering. Even if their suffering is something as slight as a paper cut, as a stubbed toe, you will relish in it because of what they've come to represent. And that is a very understandable reaction to their style of leadership as chiefs but also what the mere existence of chiefs meant to the agekoyo. the fact that you have this person uh existing represents the fact that you are no longer able to make your own decisions you are no longer able to appoint your own leaders and then this guy who was not appointed by you but was appointed by the people who want to oppress you. Has the audacity to try to tell you what to do, and you have no choice but to listen. It's just insulting and grating, and it's, it, even thinking about it makes me furious, right? Because, and not like why? Who the fuck do you think you are to tell me what to do, right? Um, as 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 a chief, anyway. And I would imagine a lot of the first generation chiefs. Um, were experiencing this legitimacy gap, this legitimacy crisis, and that's something they had to deal with. That might also explain why a lot of these first-generation chiefs, in addition to, you know, them not having the backing of the people, might have been more willing to resort to violence in order to bridge that legitimacy crisis. Um, But I want you to think about, for a moment, those chiefs themselves, and what it meant to be a chief in this new environment, what it meant to be a leader uh, for the agekoyo in this new environment. And for a minute, I want us to turn to um, C. Dundas. He was the ADC for Kiambu in 1912, um, because he puts it quite nicely. He says, and I quote, for chiefs, there were only two courses open. Either they had to work in our interests and risk unpopularity, which in their unnatural positions was fatal to them, or they had to side with their people against us and thus become the instruments of their subjects while they pretended to help us. Most of them tried to do both and failed all around." End quote. And before I continue, I want to point two things out about that quote. One, um, ADC right there, my mandem, clearly recognizes that the whole chief thing is unnatural. um, And yet, he still expects it to be legitimate. Um, I don't know how he's going to square that circle. And number two, he's saying that if he, the chief, uses their power to help out the agekoyo to shirk off colonial rule, that they are an instrument of their subject, but are leaders not instruments of their subjects? Like, he's saying it like it's a bad thing. Like, oh, this guy's going to be, like, this guy's basically just going to be used by his people. But it's like, Is that not what a leader is? (laughs) An instrument of their subject? Anyway, uh, moving on. This balancing act only got harder with the second generation of chiefs. Many were the sons of the first generation. They were mission-educated young men who embraced British culture and education and traditions. Their education meant that they could read and write, which made the work a lot easier. Their embrace of the West made them model colonial citizens, beacons that the British could point to but it also made them more complicit in a system that exploited their fellow clanmen. It also suggested a colonization of the mind, and as a result, it further entrenched the resentment people felt towards chiefs. Chief Waruhio was part of the second generation of chiefs, but unlike his counterparts, the Jonjos, the Koinanges, the Wayakis, he was not a son of a chief. Waruhio was born in Kimadi, a small village in Kiambu County around 1890. His father was a peasant, and his father's name was Kungu. He had abandoned his first two wives in gatanga Moranga, and when he fled to Kimadi, he was fleeing there to basically see what he could make of himself as a frontiersman. Now, a frontiersman was a person who found new places to live for the agekoyu, therefore pushing their boundaries and their reach further and further out. It was as a frontiersman in Kemaldi in Kiambu County that Kongo got married and had five children in nine years. Unfortunately, only two lived, Toro and Chief Waruhu. in eighteen ninety nine when Waruhio was nine, a famine struck the area, forcing his family to return to Moranga. This famine was called the and i'm and I'm really trying with these Kikuyu words I am really, really really trying the reason i had to say it right now is because i'm looking at what i have to say and i'm literally just trying to buy me time and i'm hoping that i could talk enough english to stop me from having to say this word badly all this is to say that i probably should have practiced before switching on the mic Ooh anyway this famine is called the ngaragu ya ruraya ruraya or the famine of europe as it was associated with the coming of the colonizers It devastated Kikuyu land and surrounding areas. To make things worse, the famine was just the first in a series of unfortunate events that just fucked Kikuyu land. Prior to the famine, there were 18 consecutive seasons without rain, which is at least five years without a single drop from the heavens. That is what caused the famine. The year before, in 1898, there was a locust invasion which compounded the lack of food. And the year before the famine, there was a smallpox outbreak. Things were so bad that people ate whatever they could find, stopping just short of cannibalism. Now it was in this environment that Kungu and his wife and and Warhu and Toro, his sons, kind of realized we cannot stay in Kimadi, we are going to die here. That's why they were trying to go back to Muranga. Unfortunately, along the way, Waruhu lost his father. He died. Um, so um, So the family set up shop in Kamboy, which is about five kilometers away from Kimadi, at a new missionary unit. The mission was established in 1902, and both Waruhu and his brother became mission boys sometime after 1903. As a mission boy, Waruhu completed various errands about the house, like cleaning the compound, drawing water, tending to the animals, and basic housework. He also benefited from basic literacy classes that included lessons on how to read and write, mathematics, English, and of course, religious studies. Warohyu and Toro's relationship with the missionary benefited their mother, who received food, items of clothing, and land from the mission unit. The missionary unit basically saved the family from the horrors of famine, more importantly for our purposes, this reality, the fact that Warahew benefited <laughs> from colonialism, made him have a very different colonial experience, because he started seeing the colonizers as beneficial and of value to the Agikuyu, and it would plant a seed of this belief that would only grow in years to come. In 1905, Warahew left, K- oh, left Kambui and went to Ngena to help some missionaries establish, establish another unit there. While at Ngana, Warahio also continued with his education and proselytized, spreading the good word of the gospel to anyone who would hear him. In 1906, Warahio was initiated into his Rika, or age group. During the initiation ceremony, initiates were taken through Kikuyu customs, traditions, religion, folklore, and sex. Once initiated, the initiates became adults in Agikuyu society. Um, they also transitioned into the warrior class of the Agikuyu and also became eligible for political, judicial, and religious functions within society. Quoting from Evanson Wamagata's thesis on Waruhiu, and I quote. The Rika was the basis of the Kikuyu political organization. In pre colonial times, the male Rika mates had formed an army contingent, which, among other functions, had to defend the country and act as the police force until they graduated into elderhood. The spirit of comradeship among Rika mates was therefore much more overwhelming and even stronger than that existing between real brothers, as it occasionally even led to a sharing of their wives. End quote. This is the spirit with which Warihu would treat his rika mates, irrespective of religious or belief or social standing. He would always treat his rika mates as his brothers. He would never go as far as to sharing wives, but it would always be like, this is my brother. So in 1906, Warihu was initiated into the rika ya nyarigi. It was named after a song sung during the initiation ceremony called the nyarigia. In 1909, Warihyo was baptized, like Christian baptism, and he was assumed the English name John. His adoption of a new Christian name was supposed to signify the rejection of the old and bad, which is Kikuyu traditionalism, and the embrace of the new and good, which is European Christianity. Why? I don't know. I could guess, I could really guess, and I guess you could hear in my voice, I I really want to go on a tangent, but I'm trying to be focused right now. TLDR just... It's not good. Um anyway, the next year in 1910, after being initiated, after getting baptized, Warihu married Wanjiru, his first wife, and they had cute pet names for each other. Oh my god. Um Warihio called his wife Wagadenge, and she alone called him Waru Aro. Isn't that the cutest? Um shortly after their marriage, the two of them would return to Kambui. Tragedy would strike in 1913 when Waruhu's brother, Toro, died. And in response to his brother's death, Waruhu began training as a hospital assistant. In the same year, he was made the headmaster for the school at Kambui, and as headmaster, he coordinated the curriculum and oversaw and managed the staff critically he assessed their evangelical skills before allowing them to proselytize and by 1913 wario was also a church elder and he had in addition to having his mission duties like preaching and training the teachers at the school and by this point by the end of 1913 rather he had qualified as a hospital assistant on the side as well he would also travel to Ukambani on business where he and a colleague would buy goats and sell them at a profit in kikuyu land so at this point you kind of feel like everything was going quite well in wario's life he has a wife. He has a family home and a family life that's quite strong. Um, He has a great job. He's a head teacher of the missionary school. He's a hospital assistant. Uh, He was made a church elder. Like, man is out here shining, shining. Uh, But then in 1915, the universe was like, hold up. And he contracted elephantiasis. And as a result, his left leg swelled to epic proportions. Now, elephantiasis isn't going to kill you if treated. It isn't going to kill you if treated. If left untreated, then yeah, you're probably going to die. So once again, Warihu put his faith in the colonizers and said, could you please help me? And he went to the hospital. He was hospitalized for three months and in February 1916, he got out. And when he got out, he was a full blown convert of colonialism. He was extolling its praises to anyone who would hear. And honestly, can you blame him? Um, Agents of colonialism, the colonizers themselves, had saved his family time and time again. Once from famine and drought, once again from illness and death, and once more from eternal hell, assuming his faith was fervent and he honestly believed that Jesus Christ was the way, the truth, and the light. When you put all of this together, doesn't it make a little bit more sense why he collaborated? Right? Doesn't it make a little bit more sense why he made why he would make the choices he would later make in life. Because he had had a pretty good, for want of a better word, experience with colonization. Colonization had saved his life and his family's life. Colonization had allowed him to become more than he would have been in pre-colonial age society. Which seems to suggest that Waruhu was not a blind follower of the British colonizers. He was not just in it for greed. Like here he really might have believed that all the land alienation and dispossession, all the just general fuckery associated with colonization was ultimately worth it. Western education, western healthcare, all these technologies were ap- were ultimately worth it in his eyes to continue having the colonizers, you know, do do the colonizing shit. But at some point this recognition of value became I, I, I don't know how to explain it. He almost started to worship uh, the British and the colonizers themselves, um, according to Wamangata. And, and I quote, Waruhu believed his own white superiors authority was God given and to disobey them was tantamount to disobeying God himself, which as a belief. it's it's fucked up and makes you wonder just how the missionaries were evangelizing if this is what Warihu took from it if the lesson that he learned was to disobey was that to disobey white authority is tantamount to disobeying god what are you telling him what side of christianity are you showing him uh anyway out of the hospital it was still 1916 Waruhu was now on the path to power. Between 1916 and 1922, Waruhu went from humble mission worker to recognized civil servant. He participated more in securing the welfare of the district and began associating with the colonial government more and more to meet these ends. All this culminated in his appointment to chief in 1922. So let's talk about this journey for a while. Let's talk about the six-year period. Um, In 1919... Waruhio was appointed to the Kiambu Kiama together with Josiah Njonjo, Charles's father, Philip Karanja, and Koinange Wambiu. And in 1919, he also became the founding member of the Kikuyu Association, which I will call the KA for short, which was the first African political organization in the Protectorate, or Kenya. Um, He also at the time was clerking for Chief Weweru Wakanja of Ruweru. And of these three, The founding of the K.A. and his clerkship are the most interesting. So let me start with the K.A. or the Kikuyu Association. It was founded by Warohyo, Jonjo, Koinange and Karanja. Now we need to be really careful because the Kikuyu Association is not the same thing as the Kikuyu Central Administration or K.C.A. The K.C.A. was founded by James Buta and Joseph Kangadeh. And it should also, the K.A. should also not be confused with the Young Kikuyu Association founded by Harry Thuku. Both the K.C.A. and the Young Kikuyu Association were explicitly anti-colonial. They rejected the political structure that the colonizers had imposed on us and were essentially fighting for independence as early as 1920. However, By contrast, the Kikuyu Association took a more collaborative approach with the British government, accepting that colonial structure because the members had achieved power within it. The KA was established to protect the landed interests of the African colonial elite after the publication of a land settlement report recommended taking the land along railway line in Nairobi and Limuru. Much of this land belonged to the Egekuyu, so as you can imagine, everyone's first reaction was, the fuck you will. (laughs) Um, Wariohio's involvement with the KA was a springboard to power. In a letter that found its way to the DC of Kiambu, Wariohio's qualities as a chief were extolled. Specifically, that he was chosen by the Kikuyus. Well, not all the Kikuyus, just the ones that counted. And by that one, they definitely meant the Christian ones. Uh, Unfortunately, the D.C. declined to appoint Warihyu as chief because there were no available spaces, and the government was neither ready nor willing to create a space specifically for him. From this experience, Warihyu learned two things. First, if if he is to be a chief, then he needs to find a location. Done. Ruiru would be his target. The second lesson he learned, that he needed to create a space for himself by getting the other guy fired. Which should be easy enough. After all, he was clerking for the man he intended to replace, Chief Waweru Wa Kanja. Oh yeah, it's all coming together. Now, as a clerk, Warahue would spend the next two years undermining his boss from 1920 to 1922, truly letting the love of Christ work through him. His responsibilities afforded him incredible access to just fuck with Wawiru Wakanja's administration. Honestly, it is a work of art what he was able to do, so Waruhu had handled all the administrative tasks, translated correspondences for, for Waweru and dispensed law and order on his behalf to make things even better for Waruhu. Waweru was a notorious drunk, so sometimes when the d c wrote that he would be visiting Waweru, Waruhu would often withhold the information, and then the d c would show up, and Waweru would be drunk as a skunk or just like out there somewhere drinking and not with the d c um Or sometimes when Waweru was summoned to like the head of Kiambu, like the capital or whatever of Kiambu, hio would go instead and say that Waraiu had sent him because Waweru was still too drunk to show up, and when translating for Waweru, hio would twist the meaning of his words and do the same for the colonizers. As as Waruhio undermined Wawiru, the latter was not the wiser. In fact, Wawiru trusted him implicitly because Wawiru was his nephew. And family would never screw you over. Right? Right? Wrong drunk. Don't, don't trust, trust anyone. In April 1922, Waruhio supplanted his uncle Waweru as chief of Ruweru. Now, at some point, I don't really know when, but it's important to talk about this. At some point, Waruhio was given a copy of Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery. This would be the second most important book in Waruhio's life. I'll let you guess what the first one is. Written in 1901, Up From Slavery is about Booker T. Washington's journey from slavery to freedom. Now, to my mind, the strongest idea in this book, or perhaps its central thesis, is that there is an inherent dignity and power in labor, particularly for African Americans. And this power, the power of labor, can be used by African-Americans to empower themselves, to gain social mobility, and ultimately to experience some sort of freedom in the racist fucking hellhole that is America. Um, According to Booker T. Washington, fighting for civil rights in the early 20th century was nonsensical. It was too early. African-Americans were simply just not ready. So they should focus on uplifting themselves First through labor, then through industry and entrepreneurship, and most importantly, education. For Booker T. Washington, it was useless to discuss civil rights and liberties or social justice until African Americans had quote-unquote caught up. And I don't even know what that means. Um, You tend to hear this argument a lot whenever somebody in power is trying to deny somebody else's rights. Like, most recently with this whole debate about repatriating cultural property and cultural artifacts, you will hear a lot of museums, private um, institutions, and private uh, uh, collection holders, you will hear them say, of course I want to repatriate the Benin Bronzes back to Nigeria. I just don't think the Nigerians care about them enough for me to do it right now. I just don't think they're ready to take care of these cultural artifacts in a way that just is comfortable for me. And it's like, no, please, (laughs) it's not a... About you it's just very interesting to hear this they're not ready bullshit be said by a member of the oppressed class it's very interesting right because we know the reason why minority peoples of the world and oppressed peoples of the world are not ready is because they've been excluded from things that are designed to prepare them to be ready it's 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 not that they can't. It's that they haven't been given the chance. So, yeah. I don't understand Booker T. Washington. But anyway, the whole reason why I brought up this whole book thing is because Waruhu fucking loved it. For him... Africans were simply not ready to govern themselves. For him, talking about the color bar and talking about all these race issues was not gonna do anything. We should actually just like, try to focus on empowering Africans, getting us ready to a point where we can be governed, as opposed to also doing that, but then also fighting for equal rights. Like, it's, you can do both. (laughs) You don't have to choose which one, you can do both. That is the power of humanity. We can do two things at once. right? So, yeah, like, this philosophy that he was introduced to in Booker T. Washington's book would define his chiefdom and how he chose to govern. It, would, it might also explain why, for the most part, he remained silent on land alienation and dispossession, even as Koinange and John Jo verbally and explicitly attacked the colonizers, and why he also prioritized developing his district, even if people hated him for it. It also adds a layer of complexity to his collaboration and his loyalty, or rather the strength of his loyalty to to the British and to the colonizing mission, but his belief in what I argue is the myth of black inadequacy and insufficiency did not stop him from being a good leader? Like, this is something that I was surprised to learn because whenever you read the story, you have to assume he must have been a pretty shitty leader to his people for him to have been murdered like that. Um, but no, he was he, apparently, he was actually pretty decent for the most part. Um, returning to Amagata's thesis, and I quote, while Hugh was endowed with leadership qualities that were rarely found in other chiefs of the time. He was certainly a born leader who had previously lacked outlets to display and exercise his leadership talents owing to his abject condition, i.e. his poverty. Chief Warahio was therefore definitely a Mudamaki in the true sense of the word, and he was not only a Mudamaki wa bfururi, a political leader, but also a Mudamaki Washira, an expert in judicial matters. Warahio also possessed the rare gift of never losing his temper, even when he was provoked. Moreover, he had a marked gift for smoothing over difficulties and ensuring cooperation. Now, all of this made him incredibly popular with colonial authorities who praised him as, and I quote, loyal, intelligent, hardworking, progressive, obedient, thoroughly reliable, responsible, executively outstandingly efficient, dependable, and a tower of strength, end quote. Uh, okay, I probably should have said that with less salt <laughs> and like less pettiness. I'm so sorry. Um, But the reason why I said it like that is because... I already know the colonizers loved him. And the reason I'm not going to put that much stock into their positive portrayal of him is because I know the yardstick that they are using to judge him is how well he's able to impose colonial laws and rule and reinforce the colonial system, which is brutal. But him being a good leader in the eyes of the British does not mean he was a good leader um, in the eyes of the agikuyu, Even Mamagata's characterization of Waruhyu as a mudamaki in the true sense of the word, end quote. We're not sure if that sentiment was reflected on the ground, so let's talk a bit about what he did with the power that he was given, because he was given this power. Um, And the question of land, warihu did not speak about land issues, and for a lot of people, they took his silence to mean complicity, Um, but in reality, he didn't speak, he just... Acted like sometimes in really weird. I don't want to maybe over re, like reactionary ways. Um, an example of this is in 1925, he rejected the marriage of a Kikuyu woman and an Indian miller out of fear that the marriage would set a precedence for land transfer outside the agikuyu. More traditionally, in terms of fighting against land alienation, in 1936, he and Koinange pushed for land registration in Kikuyu land and the issuing of title deeds. He oversaw the resettlement of dispossessed people, and he even stopped the allocation of 4,000 acres of Kiambu to Nyeri, Ambu, and Muranga districts. And when he served as a councillor on the Kiambu Legislative Council, he never compromised with the Europeans on educational and land matters if the outcome was detrimental to his people. Therefore, just, just a basic rundown of this seems to suggest that, like, he wasn't it's 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 more complicated and that history resists simplicity um he even, you know, financially supported Eluid Mathu and James Gishuru in the early 1930s. In fact, Warihu was instrumental in ensuring that Mathu's education was paid for eight years, even though the colonizers were strongly against it and really tried to force his hand into not doing it. But Warihyo was like, the fuck you will? Um, anyway, as a result of this education, Mathu would become the first African member of the LegCo for Kenya in 1944. On the subject for, of education, Hill pushed for the education of women and girls in Kiambu. In August 1931, Hill, supported by Njonjo, appealed to the government to admit girls into Alliance High School. He fought for equal opportunities between the sexes after his visit to England in the 1940s. He was a feminist icon before being a feminist icon was cool. Yet this did not change the fact that why Hu was a colonial imposition. Even though Wamagata calls him a Mudamaki in the truest sense of the word, he was never a- appointed or chosen from his people. His power did not derive from them, it derived from the colonizers, which meant that his very existence, even trying to associate him with being a Mudamaki, it amounts to a perversion of the concept and of, and, and of the word. Um, This means, and the the fact that like his power, his legitimacy, his authority came from the oppressors means that every single decision he made, every law he enforced, every inch of progress achieved was a reminder of everything the people had lost. Their traditional governance structures, their cultural autonomy, their land, their freedom of labor. No matter what he did, Warahue would have been disliked. This is before we get into the fact that he was a incredible recruiter for labor um, for the white old coffee plantations and the fact that he was ruthless in making sure that those farms were fully stocked with labor unfortunately waruhu was the face of a system that had changed life as people knew it forever a system that did not really care about the egekoyo and they knew it And Warahue did not do himself any favors when he never once used the power he was given to support affiliated associations, groups, or movements that criticized the colonial government and its policies. Again, we're going back to the whole Booker T. Washington thing, right? Like, that's why me telling you about that book was so important. Because even Jo John and John Koinange were low-key on the side, out there supporting those anti-colonial movements because they knew it's fucked up. But Wari Hill was just kind of like, no, we're going to work through the system. We should not focus on fighting for independence right now. We're, like, trying to get equal treatment. We're just going to try to develop within the shithole that we have been put in. And it's like... It's great you're trying to make the best out of a bad bunch, but that doesn't mean you should stop demanding better bunches. And not only did he not use his power to support or protect or, or I don't know, do something beneficial to anti-colonial movements, he also used his power to, de- to fuck with chiefs who supported those same anti-colonial movements. Thus limiting the number of allies those movements had in key places of power. Like he was actively doing something that would have set the movement back, and it just, it just colors all the development and progress that he's trying to 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 de, is trying to deliver for for his district. It sullies the work he's doing in the background to make sure the kikuyu rights are being respected, it just suggests not only a very complex human being and with very complex and complicated motivations, but also perhaps a man who is at war with himself, a man whose dualities are constantly battling, constantly trying to figure out how to balance between these two sides. And when you have the fact that he didn't support colonial movements and the fight for independence, you have the fact that he actively worked against that struggle by getting rid of chiefs who would have been allies to those movements. And then on top of that, you add his you add the allegations of corruptions thrown at his feet, because he went to court twice, once in 1947 and 1948 over corruption. You then add the fact that he also sometimes never paid his debts and then you add the whole him being very a very keen labor recruiter for white farms and you kind of understand why people hated him you kind of understand why for a lot of people he represented the worst of colonial governance to the kikuyus while at the same time embodying the very best of colonial governance to the colonizers I do empathize with him having to balance that act and I do not want to be in his position. But at this point, I feel like it's worth us having a discussion of of what was he supposed to do with the power he was given. Like just because you're in a position of power and you have the ability to stop something or do something to benefit your community, does that mean that you have to? I know we would all like you to, but does that mean that you have to use your power for the greater good? Number one. Number two. Why is it that as a country, we are so quick to delegitimize and not fully discuss what Waruhu believed to be the greater good, right? Because for him, everything that he was doing was the greater good. He saw the introduction of Western education, Western technology, Western medicine as ultimately beneficial for his people. So everything he did was in service to a greater good as defined by Waruhu does that mean that or rather is it fair for us therefore to judge his actions based on our moral systems and try to understand them based on our moral systems and not his own is 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 it fair to his legacy and to his memory as destructive as it may have been and i think these are very important questions for us to answer because um, as Karidi said in the first episode of the year, the the Madogs episode, please go check it out. He said that history is nothing but propaganda, and as you study Warahu, you come to realize that his story, it's not the story of his life as much as it is a story of his death and how his death has been understood in post-colonial Kenya. In post-colonial Kenya, I get the sense that Warahu's death, while unfortunate was ultimately necessary to kick off the struggle for independence and to get rid of the British of the Britishs of the colonizer's chief collaborator like let me give you an example of how highly regarded this man was by the British. In 1935 he was recognized as the best chief in the district. Four years later, in 1939, he was named as the most likable chief in the province. By 1944, he was considered to be the best chief in the colony. And by 1952, when he was murdered, some in the British administration and government thought Waruhu was the best chief in East Africa. These accolades alone were enough to justify his death after the fact. Um, Because how dare you be good at oppressing your own people, my guy? How dare you be so good that you are recognized for it? You are recognized for your competence in being an agent of colonization, in perpetuating the colonial system. It doesn't matter if you thought you were doing the right thing. At least this is the line I got from post-colonial Kenyan history. It doesn't matter if... Waruhio genuinely, in his heart, thought he was doing the right thing. The impact was the perpetuation and the maintenance of a system that fucked with every single person in ways that were less than beneficial. Even he is a victim of colonialism right so the question now becomes after having told you about his record about what he did and did not do for land dispossession and alienation and fighting against that what he did for education and women's rights and and like his corruption as well as what he represented was he a good leader to be honest i don't know um i it's very difficult for me to judge Because I'm not there, like I don't have that context and I've only done about two to three weeks worth of research. So I I genuinely don't know. Um, But what I do know is how I felt reading his story and I felt incredibly conflicted um, because I understood why people wanted to kill him. It's not something I would have done, but I understood that reflex and I understood why people kept trying to kill him. Oh yeah, his murder in 1952 is not the first time somebody tried to kill him. It's just the first time that it worked. There are, I think, three different times that somebody tried to kill him between 1939 and 1952. The first, as I said, was in 1939, and the the, uh, the people were not subtle about it. They set fire to the houses of the homes of his of two of his wives and his mother because they thought he was home. And turns out he wasn't. He was at um, the home of, of his first wife, Wanjiru. And thankfully, nobody died in this attempt. Around 1940, the next year, there was another attempt on his life. Um, This time, the would-be assassins were waiting for him outside of the bushes of Wanjiro's house. See, they'd learned from the earlier mistake. So as they hid, as they hid, as they hid in the bushes, they see a man approaching, right? And then they quickly attack this man, slashing his head open. Turns out, it was not Waruhio. It was his son, William Gidambu. Gidambu was home from school uh, during the school holiday period, And immediately after, you know, having his head sliced open, he was taken to hospital and he was stitched up and sent back home. Unfortunately, three months later, he died during a football game at school. So, yeah, the, uh, at least the assassins managed to kill somebody of Warahue's DNA, I suppose. The tiny victories? Anyway, soon after, a man by the name of Kinode Wagitoro was arrested and charged with attempted murder after Gidambu had recognized him. Turns out, Kinode had been fired from a job after a disagreement with Waruhio, so he was arrested, convicted, and sentenced to nine months in prison. Attempt number three on Waruhio's life took place in 1950. Since being subtle didn't work before, the assassins just let their knots hang. Somebody tried stabbing Waruhu with a spear attached to a long pole through his bedroom as he lay sleeping. Now, when I read this, my mind immediately went to that episode of Friends where all six of them create a very long poking device to poke ugly naked guy to see if he's dead. And part of my mind immediately went to, how long was this pole? How did they manage to make such a long pole? Was it a bunch of sticks stuck together? Was it a bunch of sticks tied together? How has this long pole moved around? Was it a team of six friends just trying to snake it through the window? Or was it one incredibly strong guy with quite strong like shoulder and tricep muscles just doing his thing? I had so many questions. Still, still, the fact that I had so many questions should have clued you in to just how... I'm going to be kind here. How interesting of an, of an idea this was to try to kill somebody, because it seems while they had factored in making sure that while he was present, he was in a house and that they could see him. See, learning from their past mistakes, they kind of forgot to factor in the wire mesh outside of his bedroom window, and it gave them such a difficult time that the struggle... Sorry, that the sound of that struggle awoke his wife, who was sleeping in the same room, and she yelled, thus waking Waruhu up, who threatened the assassin away. Like, the attempt didn't seem politically motivated, but damn, it was clumsy. Now, the last attempt on Waruhu's life took place in 1952. This was attempt number four, months before the final successful assassination plot. After the clumsiness that was attempt number three in 1950, the assassins went back to basics and tried to light the home of his fifth wife on fire. Unfortunately for the assassins, that is, Waruhu was not home at the time. He was quite far away, so the plot failed. After attempt number four, Waruhu became very, very fearful of his life. He began to suspect that these attempts were related to the Mao Mau and the ongoing struggle for independence. And at this point, we need to like back up a little bit and talk about the Mau Mau. The movement started in 1946 to 1947 in Oleguruon. Nay, nee. Oleguruon? somewhere in Rift Valley, I think. My knowledge of Kenyan geography is not the greatest. Um the, <laughs> that is when the first members of the Mau Mau took the oath. Initially the Mau Mau was an alliance of different types of people. Squatters in the Rift Valley, Kikuyu peasants and the urban plural Wow, the Kikuyu proletariat each of them sick and fucking tired of British colonial rule and wanting to do something about it. The oaths spread across land, radicalizing some, decolonizing the minds of many, and uniting even more against British rule. When the oaths made their way into Kiambu, Chief Warisho opposed it with his chest. He took opposing the Mau Mau as a personal challenge. He held barazas, urging people not to join the Mau Mau. He met with his bosses to discuss how to eradicate them. He prosecuted every Mau Mau soldier or member he could get his hands on. And at a rally in 1952, months before his death and before a crowd of 30,000, Waruhio said, and I quote, The Kikuyu country is like this grass, blowing one way and another in the breeze of Mau Mau. We have come here to denounce this movement. It has spoiled our country and we do not want it. But the people were not convinced. They were tired of being told what to do, how to do it, and when to do it. They were sick of being told that they were fundamentally incapable of managing their se- themselves. And Warahue, as the man recognized by the colonizers themselves to be their top guy, would be a victim of this frustration and anger. A fact that Warahue himself was aware of. He knew that somebody was going to come for his ass for everything that he was doing, yet... He declined the bodyguard that his bosses had offered, but he only accepted the 38 Smith and Wesson that the cops were going to give him. He also accepted lessons on how to use this weapon as well as ammunition. Um, He also changed his habits and never using the same road twice and rarely sleeping at his home. But even he knew his death was inevitable. He knew it would happen sooner rather than later, so he began distributing his property among family and leaving advice around. And finally, the day was here. It was the 7th of October, 1952. The day Warahue would die, or did die. On his way back from a court case, Warahue was gunned down in his car a little after 1pm. A Ford console was trailing Warahue's Hudson on his way back from the courthouse. When his driver pointed that out to him, Warahue assured him that it was nothing. When Hughes, other passengers asked him, hey, my guy, do you have your gun just in case shit hits the fan? Waruhu was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I have it. Don't worry. I only take it out in terms of in-, in case of emergency. And right now it's not an emergency. So just relax, enjoy the drive. We are good. Now, th- the way he said it had the people in the car thinking, oh, he like must have his gun on him. Like it's hidden, but it's accessible, um, which means that even if shit hits the fan, we're going to be fine. Um, But no, 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 no. The gun was in the front of the car. Waruhu was in the back. The gun was unloaded and the ammunition was on Waruhu. Like he had it in his pocket in the back seat. So basically that gun was useless. So when shit hit the fan, it was going to be bad. Now, at some point, the Ford console that was trailing the Hudson, Waruhu's Hudson, stopped trapping Waruhu. What happened next only took 15 seconds. The front passenger of the console exited the vehicle and asked for Chief Warihu. Before he could respond, the man shot him five times at point-blank range. He used the same kind of gun that Chief Warihu had gotten from the police force, a thirty-eight Smith & Wesson. One shot went into his mouth and four in his chest. He died instantly. The gunman then shot the front left tire of the Hudson, and laughing casually, he walked away, entered the Ford console, and sped away, headed for Nairobi. The assassins had finally succeeded. Warihu and everything that he would come to represent was dead. In the aftermath, Warihu's driver alerted authorities, and soon after, a search for the Ford console began across Nairobi. By the end of the day, 150 people had been interrogated, but no arrests had been made. Police also announced a 2,000 shilling reward for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of the assassins. The following day, the reward quintupled, going to 10,000 shillings in 1952 money after Warahue's settler friends made an anonymous contribution. Two days later, on the 9th of October, Warahue's body was laid to rest. He was accorded the full honors of a fallen British hero. Coverage of the murder plot across the colonies, but particularly in England and Kenya, depicted Warohu as a victim, not of colonialism, but of his own people. By the 14th of October, the governor of Kenya had written to the secretary of state to the colonies asking him to authorize a state of emergency, which is basically a declaration of war against The Mau Mau and, you know, anyone fighting for independence or anyone the British thought was fighting for a free and independent Kenya ruled by non-white people. Prior to Wariohio's death, the governor was reluctant to impose such a stringent measure, despite the white settlers begging for it. And a week later, on the 20th of October, war was declared in the Mau Mau. The state of emergency had begun. Shortly thereafter, the Kapunguria 6 were arrested, peasants were forcibly moved into villages to isolate Mamama activists, Rift Valley squatters were repatriated to Kikuyu land, and thousands of Kikuyu were arrested, detained, and tortured. Relevantly for us, the search for Waruhu's assassin continued, returning to Wamagata, and I quote, The search for the assassins of Warihyo left many suspects badly beaten. Some of them were almost crippled as a result of the injuries suffered while being interrogated. This is exemplified by the case of Gishiri, Warihyo's driver. Having narrowly escaped death, he thereafter spent several months behaving like a zombie on account of the severe beatings he sustained while being interrogated. End quote. But... Despite the fact that beatings and torture just do not work in terms of criminal investigation, you want to know what actually works? Doing some fucking investigating. Despite that, the DCI had managed to round up 14 suspects by the end of 1952, including Senior Chief Koinange, with whom Maruhio had had a falling out after Koinange was promoted to Senior Chief before him. This fallout was so bad that when the assassination plot that resulted in Gidambu's death was investigated, Warihu was a thousand and one percent sure that it was Koinange who was behind the whole thing. On the 23rd of January, 1953, all, 50, all 14 appeared in court to defend themselves. In February, the court dismissed the charges against five of the accused. Meanwhile, they've had found sufficient evidence to submit the remaining nine to the Supreme Court. Of the nine, three were charged with murder and six were charged with conspiracy to murder. Senior Chief Koinange was among the six. His son, John Wesley Mbiyu, was among the three charged with murder. Now, almost all of the, I think it was not almost all. Every single one of the six charged with conspiracy to murder was acquitted because the one person who... Or rather, the one person whose evidence was used to charge them just fell apart on the stand. So the judge was like, yeah, we're not going to go forward with this. Um, so they were released. Um, but literally, as soon as they stepped foot out of the courthouse, they were rearrested and detained because state of emergency. Now, let's talk about the trial of the three uh, people who were charged with murder. Their names were Gaduku Wamige, Weweru Wakamundia, and John Wesley Biu. We begin with Waweru. He's a taxi driver who was accused of being the getaway driver. In his confession, he implicated Gathuku, who was accused of pulling the trigger. And then Gathuku then implicated Mbiyu, who said it was Mbiyu who planned the murder and got the weapon. The 38th Smith and Wesson. I really hope you're keeping that gun model in the back of your mind because it's going to come back around. Now... When the trial began on the 31st of March, 1953, all three pleaded not guilty. Mbiyu said, I do not know this Gaduku guy. Like, why the fuck is he trying to implicate me in shit? I have absolutely no business being in. Also, the first time I met him was the Saturday before the murder. So I don't know how I could have planned something if I didn't know him before then. You get me? Um, that was his defense. Now, Gadzuku and Weberu's defense was police brutality. Their statements were issued after they had been severely beaten and told what to say by a senior officer. The police, of course, denied this. But when do they ever... <laughs> when do the cops ever cop up to police brutality? Come on! Um, after hearing this, the judge acquitted Mbiu, saying that he was only implicated by someone else's statement... Uh, who themselves was also implicated by somebody else's statement, and there was no evidence to corroborate his connection to the crime. Unfortunately, Gathuku and Weweru were found guilty and sentenced to death. Both men appealed to the Court of Appeal for East Africa, and their appeals were dismissed on the 9th of May, 1953. Soon after, Gathuku and Weweru were hanged. Case closed, right? Wrong. Public opinion disagreed strongly, vehemently. In the eyes of the public, Gathuku was not the assassin. Even Waruhu's driver testified that Gathuku was not the person he'd seen shoot Waruhu. And he insisted that the murderer had won a dark brown jacket, not the green jacket displayed in court. But in as much as people were saying it was not Gathuku, nobody was about to fess up as to who actually had done it. Nobody would say who did it. Maybe they couldn't say because they genuinely didn't know. Or rather, maybe they didn't want to say because snitches get stitches. But what the result is a very interesting kind of gap in this history, where we know where Hugh died. We know his assassination and subsequent murder were very politically motivated. We just don't know who did it because, yes, it could have been the Mau Mau. Like, he represented everything they hated and he was therefore the perfect target to 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 you know to kill um especially because at the time in the 1950s the mama were already planning a series of assassinations and were killing a bunch of people um around kenya particularly the highlands because they were sick and tired of being colonized but wamagata seems to think that it was not the Mamao who had orchestrated waruhu's murder according to him it was the british settlers who had planned and executed YRHU to spark the period of emergency so that, so that they could finally campaign for an independent Kenya ruled by white people that would have been an apartheid state. Um, yes, it would have been. Um, and the reason why he seems to think this is because of that 38 Smith and Wesson, you only ever got that gun out of two A's, either on the black market or through the cops, right? Getting that gun was not easy. And Mamagata was like, how would a person have had access to that gun had it not come from colonial officials and the colonial police? Like, And also, who stood to benefit more from the British cracking down on the Mau Mau? The Mau Mau or the settlers? Who's, like, who stood to benefit? There are people that disagree with, with Mamagata and argue that his uh, conclusion analysis theory is not rooted in history is not rooted in fact It completely neglects the political realities of the day and the shifting loyalties of, of 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 the british settler class but it is spicy is it not it's also incredibly poetic because if omagata is correct and waru was indeed murdered and assassinated by british settlers then the very people whom he valued, respected, and deified were the very same people who called for his death, that they had completely used his life and his death to their own colonial ends. And damn, if that's not poetic as fuck. But right now, we know who did it according to the court case. It was Gatuku, but we also don't know who did it. Um, But most importantly... We need to return to those set of questions I asked at the very beginning of the episode, you remember, about whether or not murdering Waru was, if not appropriate, then understandable. And I also asked whether or not, in light of everything that he did and everything that he represented, he quote-unquote deserved to die... I mean, not that anyone deserves to die. There are very few people who deserve to die, right? Like, you can't value all human life and then turn around and say that there are people who deserve to die. That is a contradictory statement. But when somebody does shit like this and it feels like a betrayal, you understand, or rather for me anyway, I understand this reflex. I completely get it. I'm not sure if it's one... I would entertain. I'm not sure what I would do in the situation. I'm quite grateful that I'm in a similar but very different situation to, you know, what people were experiencing in the 1950s. And I honestly don't know what I would do because there are people in this world, people who have actively sold out the human race time and time and time again. Think of the people who like the oil CEOs the companies or the CEOs of oil companies who actively hid climate change as a scientific fact for decades think about big tobacco and how they hid about the cancer risks for decades as well think about big tech and what it's doing to democracy and privacy and our institutions there are so many things to be angry about and majority of the shit that I'm angry about is like systems right but how should we respond to what these individuals are doing How should we respond to people who genuinely believe that what they are doing is good? Like, I I think that Zuckerberg thinks that what he's doing is good. Zucky Zuck. I also think Zucky Zuck needs to believe that what he's doing is good and like that he's not just doing it because being a billionaire is sweet. Um, I lost my point here. Anyway, what I was trying to say is, do these people deserve to die? Right. For what they have done to us Um, and who gets to make that decision as well. And I think that's why I'm really looking forward to the series on assassinations, because how or why somebody dies is just as important as how and why they lived. Um, and with assassinations, you have not Mother Nature coming in and saying you're done, not the universe coming in and saying you're done. You have another human being making a conscious effort to be judge, jury, and executioner for your actions. So we do need to t- to take some time to learn about these historical figures and why it is that they died, especially if it means recontextualizing their history. Um. Anyway. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I will be back, hopefully with Karibi, but I'm also very much okay sitting in this closet. Maybe. Maybe not. We'll see. Um, Anyway, bye! Thank you so much for listening to the Utajuahujui podcast. I really appreciate you giving me your time of day. I know that your time is very valuable. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram at utajuahujui.pod. That is at U-T-A-J-U-A-H-U-J-U-I dot P-O-D on Instagram. Please don't forget to like, share, review do all the nice things. I could really use the boost. Okay, enjoy the rest of your time on this planet. Goodbye!